Hi there, I'm Anne-Marie McQueen, editor of Live Healthy, and this is the Live Healthy podcast. Each week we interview health and wellness leaders and talk about all the things that are good for you, which you can also read about in our online magazine, the only one of its kind for men and women in the UAE. Today I'm speaking with Timothy Shriver. He's an American disability rights activist who has been chair of the Special Olympics since 1996. Timothy was in Abu Dhabi for the Early Childhood Education Authority's WED conference. We talked all about the impact of COVID on children of determination and their families, the ongoing effort to overcome discrimination and focus on ability, and his hopes for what is possible in the UAE and globally. Hi there. Welcome to Abu Dhabi. <laughs> Thank you. Nice to be here. Nice to be back. Is it the first time you've been back since the Special Olympics? It is the first time. You know, I thought when I left here in April of 2019, I'd be back within a year. And then, of course, the world changed and time stopped and life got disrupted. And it's taken me, I guess it is now, is that two years, three years to get back? Yeah, it's... Um, I, uh, it's, it's, it's been a loss, but you know, we, we, we stay the course. What did you, when Abu Dhabi approached the special Olympics about this situation or when you approached them, like, how did that sort of come about? And what did you think about that partnership initially? Well, look, I mean, you know, we, we, the special Olympics movement looks for partners who are interested in making things better for people with intellectual disabilities. We don't discriminate based on political structure or, geography or culture or religion or race or any of those kinds of things. We just look for countries, entities, individuals who want to make things better. And what we found when we had our first conversations with Ambassador Yusuf Al-Taiba in the United States was that this was a country that was very interested in advancing its own understanding of tolerance, of inclusion, uh, and of being a model, if it could uh, attain that level, it uh, very much wanted to be a model of uh, the broader disability rights movement and the broader inclusion and tolerance movement. So we heard stories about the planned visit of the Pope. We heard stories about the planned uh, initiatives around the Abraham at the courts. We heard stories of uh, ideals uh, in art and culture that were very consistent with our own and uh, felt very much uh, at home in, in wanting to be in partnership with the country and, and in uh, partnership with the larger effort to promote the rights and gifts of our population. Did they talk? So I arrived in the country in 2008 as part of the team that launched the national newspaper. And I, when I was an editor on the news desk there, I, one of the things that struck me when I arrived from Canada was just the complete sort of, sort of a complete lack of accessibility. You didn't see any people of determination out anywhere. It was just, yeah. and I was sort of yeah. saying what's going on here. And then I learned how people were kept at home. I mean, in 2008 and nine, it was very much that way. And then yeah. we did a series on accessibility. And I think it was in 2010 that we started it. And it, it's one of the things I'm most proud of because we started calling the government and this happened over and over when the national launched they started create changing policy. Like when we would call and say, where is your, <laughs> what are you doing about accessibility? They would react. And a lot of the yeah. changes. So 
did, did you have any experience with um, this part of the world before that? Well, we had the same thing. I mean, you know, we were talking to people in the early days about, you know, the education strategy. And there was a, a lot of thought being given to creating a, you know, a pretty significant effort to build special schools. Mm-hmm. And our council was, you know, really the inclusion movement calls for children with and without special needs with, with and without determination to be educated together. Uh, it almost resulted in an immediate pivot. I think, you know, this is, uh, we, we have found this to be a country and a culture that's as eager to learn as it is to show off. You know, everybody wants to show off. Um, uh, but most, many places uh, uh, want to put, uh, you know, more of a, I don't know, a symbolic foot forward. I think what we found here is that the country really is eager to figure out what to do next, how to improve. The, the forums we're you know, going th- into right now are about the early childhood space, which of course needs help and support as it does in every country. But what we find here, at least uh, my sense is that when there's a gap or a challenge or a need identified as you've experienced when you, when you started writing about this stuff, you know, people don't try to brush it under the carpet. People don't try to silence the critic. People don't try to uh, ignore the challenge. They seem to want to be uh, at least uh, able to take it on and, and, and make a difference. So globally, where are, just a qu- small question, globally, where are we at when, since you've started doing this work? Where you mentioned the United Nations SDG four and how you would love to hear that those, that that was actually, we were actually working towards that, or there was an achievement on that end. Where would yeah. you say we're at? And your estimation? Well, I think we're still in the early days, honestly. Sadly, I think many of the international development priorities that have so elevated people out of poverty in so many countries have done such good work. International aid organizations, global economic development strategies, um, uh, United Nations commitments in health and education have done a great job in improving development around the world. Uh, They sadly have mostly left out people with intellectual disabilities, intellectual developmental challenges. Um, so the, uh, the effort to uh, provide comprehensive primary education to all children has not really reached children with determination. Uh, it has done, you know, very important work in other areas, but not with our population. So, you know, we are, um, I think we have a restless dissatisfaction with the status quo. Uh, we are not happy with where things are, um, the global uh, community of nations could do more and could do faster and could do better and needs to do more faster and better if it wants to live up to uh, its stated commitments to the value and uh, dignity of every child. And that's all we're asking for. We're not asking for some new commitment. We're just asking for global community to live up to the commitments it's already made. And some, I mean, we think of where we are when we think of children with intellectual disabilities, but the stories I heard from the Special Olympics were kids coming from South America and having like hearing tests that they hadn't had and having dental work that they hadn't had and like glasses and all that kind of stuff. So kids living in some of those countries, can you give me some sort of like idea of how much they struggle? Well, it's not just kids in those countries. I mean, kids in the United States, kids in Western Europe are, uh, not getting access to good developmental pediatrics, not getting access to early childhood intervention, not getting access to health screenings, not getting access to dental care in, uh, in the United States, which you know, still by most estimates is the richest country in the world. Um, 
uh, children with special needs have a terribly difficult time getting access to high quality health care across the board, hearing, uh, hearing supports and so on, uh, hearing aids if they need them. So uh, we see massive gaps in the uh, equity, inequities in the healthcare system in all countries. Now, where there's greater poverty, those problems are more acute. But the chronic nature of the problem uh, of inequ inequities in the healthcare system, I mean, COVID has revealed this too. I mean, we saw uh, people with Down syndrome get denied access to emergency room treatment. Why? Because they had Down syndrome. Uh, we saw people uh, uh, denied access to the first round of vaccines, even though they had greater vulnerabilities uh, in countries like the United States and in Western Europe. So, you know, there's a there's a hidden prejudice against this population that is at least in part our mission to reveal and therefore to uh, to change. So, what would be the reason given for them being denied? Uh, early rounds to vaccination, for example, like what would what would be the barrier? What would a, what would a parent face in that? It's hard to describe. People don't admit it. They just uh, just uh, doesn't doesn't surface. I mean, we can scream and yell, but we're tiny. Um, our people are tend to be. I'm sorry to say, quite powerless in number and in economic force. Uh, so we're a small population. I mean, two, three percent of the world's population is a big number, but it's still a small percentage everywhere. Uh, our, our people tend to be poor. If they didn't start out poor, they become poor as a function of having a child with special needs. Uh, so their voices aren't powerful and they're not heard often and they're not strong. And uh, so they don't get the attention. I, I, I mean, the, the, the more um, hard harsh truth is that they're not valued equally to other children. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just about two years ago, we finally won uh, in the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, 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 a, a new standard that says that children with special needs, children with disabilities have equal rights to uh, transplant and other critical services to their non-disabled peers. That, that took 20 years just to say that if you need a transplant and you have an intellectual challenge or you're you have the same right as, as someone else's child. Mm -hmm. uh, there, was a, there was a standard uh, assumption in those kinds of medical decisions that a uh, child with special needs was at the bottom of the list. Um, it's, uh, it's hard to ignore the brutal truth of that kind of discrimination when you see it faced. You know, you wanna say, well, maybe it was this, maybe, but it's not, it's just, um, it's just that they're not valued equally to other children, period. Any form of discrimination, people say, well, it's not happening. I don't see it happening, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you, don't, you, you don't ever hear people uh, who have special needs say that. You don't certainly yeah. don't hear their parents say that. Uh, there, there's nobody I've ever met, a mom, a dad, brother, sister, or a self-advocate who would say, oh, there's no discrimination against me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and because of this, you tossed out some really interesting stats yesterday, like seven times the mortality rate. Can you just expand on some of that because of this? Well, yeah, that's what we found during COVID, you know, that, uh, but mostly the, the, the mortality rate is higher because the absence of treatments, yeah. absence of caregiving, you know, absence of early intervention, absence of early diagnosis, absence of therapeutics, uh, absence of vaccination. So in our population, a person with, uh, with no underlying uh, uh, um, risk factors any different from someone else uh, would be seven times more likely to, to die from COVID um, than their non-disabled peers, not because they have 
uh, you know, uh, lung disorders or things like that, just because they don't get the care. Um, so, you know, these are hard numbers, 15 to 20 years of lost life on average for a person with an intellectual disability. Um, uh, it's very, um, it's very painful, honestly. And um, what's I think in some ways most painful is that many of our people feel like no one cares. Yeah. And our job is at, at least in part to try to create enough attention so that they'll at least know that we care. We collectively care. And when people care, they make a change. Um, and can you, you called yesterday, you, uh, COVID, I think you called it a vicious, vicious decimator, a vicious decimator for, for um, families and children. Can you speak a little bit about what happened during COVID? COVID? Well, uh, those words just must have come to me when I was speaking. Uh, uh, look, I think social isolation, loneliness, humiliation is, uh, is the number one, in a way, killer of people with intellectual disabilities. Uh, historically, it has been um, uh, a, a, a powerful and painful uh, norm in terms of the, the, the life of people with special needs. They're just isolated, they're alone, they're locked up, they're hidden, they're um, uh, shamed in, in public. Um, COVID made all that 10 times worse. Because for those people who had the chance to go to school, might have had a job, might have lived independently and uh, been able to join social or religious or cultural organizations, all that was shuttered. Um, and so the isolation was just intensified. Um, and when you add to that underlying health vulnerabilities and then you add to that underlying health inequities, um, you have, a, we have been experiencing, our population has been experiencing a kind of a, uh, a vicious decimator um, uh, of life, of hope, um, of relationships, of support systems. Um, and so we have a lot of work to do. Uh, the number of emails and texts and phone calls I get from Special Olympics athletes, um, you know, who are just struggling with very severe depression, um, just overwhelming sadness uh, is, uh, is painful. I, I, I don't think we're alone as a community in terms of the decimation of COVID, but uh, I, I just hope that countries and people of goodwill will recognize how much, how much loss has been experienced, even for people who are still alive and maybe not sick mm -hmm. from the disease, but still the loss has been profound and the need for a gradual and and focused recovery uh, is, I think, quite, should be quite high on our collective list. And children with intellectual disabilities will be hit the hardest probably by the ability, by having to learn online. I mean, it's just, it would just be. Yeah, it's not effective at all for our public. I mean, in general, I mean, some, and there's obviously <laughs> exceptions, but in general, online learning is very, very ineffective for our, our, our folks tend to uh, value relationships and, and depend on the the power of relationships to motivate, inspire, communicate uh, much more than uh, their non-disabled peers. So, you know, general statements are um, hard to make about any large group of people, but in, our, in most cases, our, our folks 
uh, don't benefit very much at all from online learning. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's like you look for the silver lining. It's hard to find. Well, Dubai had a lockdown that was, you couldn't even go outside. And I have a friend who has a daughter um, with Down syndrome. She's autistic with Down syndrome and was, you know, imagine she wasn't even able to go out and ride her bike. But I think the Dubai yeah. police gave her a special dispensation. So she was able to go ride her bike. And I asked well, that. There mom, you go. There, there, yeah. There's the silver lining. Yeah, yeah it was really cool. And I asked that mom yesterday because I said I was going to speak with you what what I should ask you. And she just um, she she was saying, yes, it was awful to be at home. But one thing that was good was um, Ruby's. Uh, verbal skills actually got better being around the family. And she said, I was able to monitor learning a little bit more because here mm-hmm. they're still feeling their way around. And if you're in a classroom, it's, you know, it depends, but um, sure. Yeah. So that was, that's like one nice story, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think the strength in families, if you've got a strong family and moms and dads are at home and brothers and sisters are together, that there's, there, there is a silver lining there because the communication and connection to, to mom obviously was strengthened, which is beautiful. You know, sadly, most of our families don't have either the luxury or the, or the uh, benefit of those kinds of uh, capacities. But I want to go back to the police or the, the officials who gave them a waiver. Uh, that's to me, the, you know, the possible, right? I talked yesterday about the possible that, you know, imagine, I mean, I don't know who was responsible for the, but I, I'm just guessing someone thought to themselves, this is something good I can do. This is a chance to show my humanity. Yes, there's a rule. Yes, there's laws. Yes, there's standards and practices, but this child needs to go outside. And I can just imagine, I don't know this to be the case, of course, but I can just imagine people watching, maybe hearing about this and thinking to themselves, wow, you know, uh, uh, this human family does have beauty and goodness in it when we give it a chance. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm comforted and supported by the idea of some person in a government office saying, waiver. Uh, <laughs> right. uh, that's a beautiful thing. <laughs> and during the years that I've written about this, you know, one of the big things was just getting the kids into school originally, like seven, eight yeah. years ago. Yeah. I had parents saying, you know, um, the woman is the head of the Down Syndrome Association in Abu Dhabi at the time, you know, had to go to like 20 schools and beg principals to say, let my kid in. I need to have my kid in the school. Yeah. And the one principal that said, okay, he can come for a week and we'll try it out. You know, there's like, a, and, and that sounds like what a week, but you know, um, but so this is happening where the kids are getting into schools and that was a problem 10 years ago where you, you had a special needs child and you yeah. get them into a school. But now we're seeing um, like earlier uh, last year, there was a talent show that had started before COVID and it was a talent talent show for children of determination. So there was musical and it was, it was taking all that extracurricular stuff. You talked about um, a special Olympics, young athletes program, to sports after school and for kids young. Can you just sort of speak about that extracurricular stuff that all other kids? Yeah, I think, look, I think for children, look, ch- what, uh, children know something important about their own development, which is that play is really important. And every, every teacher knows that children just sit on the edge of their seats to get to recess. And they can't wait to get out after school and play games and sports and climb on jungle gyms and race and stuff like that. That's because play is fundamental to learning. Uh, that play is actually the mechanism through which a lot of both imaginative and physical and uh, cognitive development takes place. So for us, we take play very seriously. And therefore, that's why Special Olympics is pushing 
what we call special Olympics unified sports that children at very early ages learn to play together with their peers with determination so that the stigma doesn't actually start that you know you you, you create a developmental set of experiences that normalize inclusion rather than normalizing exclusion and then trying to reverse it when we get to be older. Uh, the way I grew up in school, you know, everybody's tracked into their lane. And so then you get to be uh, an adult and you think to yourself, well, this is my group and all those other people uh, don't measure up to me or whatever, whatever you're thinking. Uh, we need to reverse that by teaching children and just, you know, it's not overly complicated. You know, some things require massive studies. Some things don't. Children will play together if we give them the chance. And if they play together, they will learn together. And if they learn together, they will learn to live together. It's actually pretty straightforward uh, human development, right? Pretty straightforward common sense. Unfortunately, it's uncommon common sense. Uh, and many of our educational institutions, of which I am a part, uh, have actually created barriers to children learning to play together, to learn together, to live together. We've actually created walls between children, uh, which is a very, in my view, a very unnatural phenomenon in human history. And we got to get rid of it. Okay. So you have, um, I think you mentioned a digital tool that, that will help parents. What is that you're working on? Yeah. Well, we're, we're trying to build an app that will uh, help parents who have children with determination see the opportunities, <coughs> build social and community structures that will support them with the, their peers, other moms, dads, brothers, sisters, uh, children with determination themselves, connect them to each other, but also connect them to an environment in which their child's development is normal. Most of the world of development will look at a child with Down syndrome and say, she's behind on these eight out of the 10 developmental measures. Uh, so if you do a classification, they show up all red, you know, well, you're way below the norm on this, way below the norm on that, all that. And all it does is tell parents uh, that their child is, uh, uh, is, is behind and all it does is internalize shame in the child. We want an app that tells you, here's where your child is, here's what's next. Don't compare your child to somebody else's child. Your child is three. This is what she's doing. Freaking fantastic. Now here's what she can do next. Here's how, here's the chance to catch a ball. Here's the chance to grasp an object. Here's the chance to stand on one foot. Here's the chance to tumble. Here's the chance to hop. Here's the chance. This is what's next for your child, not what's where your child is behind. Why not build a, a digital tool that actually lets our parents see their children as growing and developing in a way that's normal for them and not always spend our lives comparing ourselves to everybody else. Uh, it's just not helpful. So we hope that this app, you know, we're in the very early stages of it, but I kind of wanted to share it yesterday because we hope we'd get some interest from some of the scholars and people who could help us build this in a way that would be uh, life-changing from the early stages. You know, so many moms tell us that the early years, uh, uh, you know, particularly the early days after they find out they have a child with special needs are so grim, so filled with sorrow, loss, grief, uh, ice, loneliness. Um, we want to shift that. We don't, we want to make those early days filled with hope and possibility and affirmation. But those measurements must exist, do they not? The measurements for what is normal for 
They exist, but you know, they're not very, they're not really known by pediatricians. I'm sorry to say, don't typically have good uh, training in these areas. Uh, other healthcare professionals, PT, OT, all these different kinds of occupational, you know, sometimes they've got specialized training that allows them to know that. So it's not like we've got to discover the patterns of development for children with Down syndrome or Williams or Prader-Willi or any other thing. Uh, we don't, we do know a lot about these conditions, but the information doesn't reach moms, dads, brothers, sisters, doesn't reach children themselves. So there's a gap between what we know and what we communicate. And uh, that's what we're trying to close with this app. You're the first that's going to try to bring this in a, in a, comprehensive well i mean i i wish we weren't the first i wish we were the hundredth <laughs> you know we were building I, I wish we were building off the strengths and experiences of others but i'm fr i'm afraid to say we're kind of in the early stages of being the first yeah okay and ha can you tell me where the special olympics is at post-covid what's going on well you know we're reopening uh in different places around the world not everywhere you know in asia we're experiencing a new round of closures but in the united states and mo most of europe latin america africa's back just on the phone with our team uh in africa yesterday and you know their numbers are actually up this year over previous pre-covid years so um you know uh, in in an average year the special olympics volunteer workforce around the world will run about 100,000, maybe 110,000 games a year at the local level. Uh, we've been, as you can imagine, uh, less than half that number the last uh, 18 months or so. But I think we're coming back and I think we're going to come back with a strength and a purpose that's renewed uh, because I think there's an awareness now that inequities exist and that they have to be addressed. And so in, in years past, I think we felt at times like we were knocking on doors that couldn't open. I hope now the doors will be open. And so when we get into those rooms where decisions are made, we'll get much quicker action around a, uh, our version of what we call the inclusion revolution. Inclusion revolution. And will you hold an international event next year? We will. We will be in Berlin next summer uh, for the 2023 World Summer Games in, the, um, in a city that has a you know, a legacy of being at the crossroads of East and West and North and South and a city that has a legacy of walls and walls coming down. And I hope at that time, uh, I hope a city that it will be a, a place of peace for all countries and a place where we can celebrate the power of inclusion to make a difference uh, in the lives of our community, but also in the lives of everybody else. Okay, that's great. Thank you so much. Thank you for your interest and thank you for continuing the work. That's it for this week. If you liked the podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next time on the Live Healthy Podcast.